of family members who returned to America or were buried overseas in a casket draped with the American flag. And so I just would encourage all of us tomorrow to take a few moments and pray for those families uh, that have a hole and to pray for those families that are actively serving and putting their life in harm's way. And I would encourage you, if you've never been to a military cemetery, that you should visit one and just walk through it. Um, because we enjoy some amazing freedoms, but it wasn't free. It came at great expense. And, uh, and that's really what this weekend was set aside uh, to remember. And to those of you that are serving now, how we thank you for that. And to those of you that have served, how we thank you for that as well. So, and to those of you that will serve, there's some young men and women here who will end up uh, being called by the Lord to do that. Why, thank you. Well, we're back in First Peter this morning, so grab something that uh, you can look at and uh, uh, follow along. You may, uh, well, it's just always good, and we're going to practice what uh, Lloyd and Dahl are all about. <laughs> we're going to engage even more in the Scriptures this morning. If, uh, if you're just jumping in with us, this is a letter that is written to a bunch of believers in the first century that uh, we're seeking to, to live uh, and to love God and to love their neighbors as themselves. And consequently, they became a very strange people. They just did not fit in with their culture and thus are even addressed as aliens and strangers. And, uh, and, it, and uh, they uniquely set themselves up uh, to be uh, harassed and tormented and sometimes put to death when they begin to exclaim that there's only one God and there's only one way to be rightly related to Him and that is through the Lord Jesus Christ and that those who refuse to put their faith and trust in Christ will experience the severe eternal judgment of God. And that message was not popular. It's life-saving to everyone who will believe. And thus, they experienced great persecution. And so last week, we looked at chapter 3, verses 13, down through verse 17. And, uh, and we looked at this whole emphasis on unjust suffering. And, uh, and the rhetorical question of verse 13, you know, who in the world would harm you if you're zealous for good? Well, when you're zealous for the good of God and righteousness, the reality is uh, you will suffer and you will suffer harm and people will come after you. And, uh, and so uh, what Peter does for those believers is he says, first of all, do not be intimidated by them. Uh, in fact, switch your focus from them and set Christ apart in your heart as Lord. In other words, make Christ bigger than them. Make him the biggest one. And, uh, and that brings great freedom in Christ. And, and then he says, when you do that, uh, there's going to be a manner of life that you're living that is going to cause other people to say, there's something different about you. Tell me about this hope that you have. And he says, be ready. Be ready. The question's coming. And, and make a defense to everyone who asks us concerning the hope that is within us. And, and what is that hope? That hope is Jesus Christ. The hope is Christ. 
The hope isn't for a better life now. The hope isn't for anything other than Christ and whatever he has for me. Now, he's given us a lot of details of that, but, but that is the hope. And then in verse um, 17, he makes it very clear that such unjust suffering is by the will of God. It is by the will of God so that God will become bigger in our lives. It is by the will of God so that we can tell other people about him. And so don't get surprised by this unjust suffering that comes our way. Which brings us into verses 18, and we want to look at 18 through 20 this morning. And here he's going to move into the example of Christ. Peter's done this several times already in this letter. But he, he causes us to look to Christ, and then he's going to take us back to Noah in the Old Testament and the flood. So two examples this morning that show the beauty of unjust suffering and how unjust suffering is a door into God's greater triumph in our lives and through our lives into the lives of other people. And so let me just pray before we jump in here and ask for the Lord's help. And Father, uh, I guess the thing we all have in common this morning is we do not like to be unjustly accused. We don't like to be unjustly treated. Um, and you have a very different perspective on this. And so, Spirit of the living God, would you give us the mind of Christ on this? And uh, would you allow us to see beyond ourselves? Would you allow us to see um, the grandness and the greatness and the beauty of the triumph that you want to accomplish in our own hearts and often in the hearts of the people around us. And so would you just shine the spotlight upon Christ and would you help us to even see through the life of Noah what we need to see so that we might embrace you and embrace whatever unjust suffering we have experienced or we're experiencing now or we will experience. Uh, Lord, we just don't want to miss out on your triumph in our lives and through our lives. So use this time this morning to that end. And it is in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, let me read verses 18 through 20. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits, now in prison, who were once disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now, in those three verses, we have an amazing, clear declaration of the gospel and an amazing, confusing something. In fact, this is one of the challenges of just teaching through the Bible. Uh, verses 19 and 20 are verses you never pick to preach on. Uh, uh, one of the commentators says there's 120 potential understandings of verses 19 and 20. So hang on, it's going to take us a while to get through those 120. <laughs> We're not going to deal with all 120. Um, and that's just from evangelical points of view. And, uh, and so 
um, I thought it would be a good opportunity for us to take a little bit of a step back, if you would, and, uh, and first of all say, so how did we get this New Testament? How did we get it? And secondly, uh, when there's a difference in words in those original manuscripts or what we would uh, believe were the original writings, what do you do with that? Because we actually have an example of that in verse 18. Some of you may have other translations. Some translations say, for Christ also died for sins. Some translations say, for Christ also suffered for sins. So what do we do with that? And then what do we do with this whole thing of he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who are once disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now when Peter wrote this letter, the people who received it knew exactly what he was talking about. But here we are 2,000 years later. How do we know what he was talking about? How do we know what they understood when they heard it? Because whenever you write a letter, you write it to communicate to the audience. They got it. Uh, we don't. And so we're going to work away at trying to put and make some sense out of that. So how did we get this Bible? Here's a short little video and uh, just kind of captures how we ended up with our New Testament. So how did the first copies of the New Testament make it around the world? And how did they put these books together? Remember, churches back then didn't have digital tablets or email. They didn't even have copy machines. All they had were pens, papyrus, animal skins. Early churches kept their original copies of the New Testament text until they wore out. Around the year 200, a really important church leader named Tertullian told how the churches in Corinth, Philippi, Thessalonica, Ephesus, Rome still had the original letters that Paul had sent them. By that time, these letters were 150 years old. But no matter how well they took care of the letters, they couldn't last forever. And that's why early Christians made copies of these letters. Remember, no e-readers, no emails, no copy machines, no printing presses. Only papyrus, reeds, ink, and animal skins. Copies made by hand. So what did churches do with these copies? Well, they kept their copies in special book chests in the homes of members. If one church didn't have a particular letter, a nearby congregation might loan their copy of the text so that that church could have its own copy too. When a writing passed from one church to another, each church also passed on an oral tradition, an oral history, a story about where this text came from. The tradition traced the text all the way back to an eyewitness of Jesus, so they knew exactly whose authority this text represented. Today, scholars have discovered more than 5,600 ancient pieces of the New Testament. That's more fragments and full manuscripts than any other text in the entire ancient world. More than Plato, more than Aristotle, more than Homer. The earliest of these New Testament fragments comes from about the year 100 when eyewitnesses of the risen Jesus were still alive. So why is this so important? Well, even though the men and women who copied the scriptures were so careful, they sometimes made some mistakes. And yet, because there are so many copies of the New Testament, scholars can compare the texts and figure out what words the authors originally wrote. You see, God has preserved His Word in such a way that the message we possess today is without any doubt the same message He inspired so long ago. Don't get much quicker than that. And uh, so there's the gist of it. And when you have that many different documents, 
And in almost all places in the New Testament, they all absolutely agree. There's a very few places where some manuscripts may have one word and another manuscripts may have another word. And as I said, we have one example of that today. And, uh, and none of those affect any significant doctrine or issues, except that a lot of times the cults pull those passages and twist it in a direction that it ought not to go. And so, how, uh, how, how do, well, let's just jump into this thing. Let's just jump into verse 18, first of all. And here we see that Christ's unjust suffering brought God's triumph to us. And again, this verse is very clear. For Christ also died for sins, or Christ also suffered for sins. If you have a NIV or a New American Standard, it says died. If you have a New King James, English Standard Version, New Revised Standard Version, it will say suffering. You'll quickly realize there's not a lot of difference between those words, really. And if you take it as suffering, you get down to the end of the verse, and he died. So right there in the context, that's there. So some would say uh, Peter's talking about suffering. That would be the more accurate translation. Some would say the ultimate aspect of his suffering was that he died. Um, so really, in this case, it really does not make a lot of difference on which one of those that you would choose to settle on. What the amazing clarity and beauty of this verse is, is that Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. And so we have this reminder that the only just person to ever live, the only person that was 100% just, suffered and died for unjust people, you and me, and the people around the world. The just one suffered unjustly so that the unjust might be brought to God. Brought to God is a, is a pretty technical term uh, that is referred, it was used in royal courts. And in royal courts, uh, especially in the olden days, you couldn't enter in without permission or what would happen to you? You'd be put to death. You'd be put to death. It wasn't a casual culture like ours today. You just don't wander into the monarch. And, and so this term was used of the person who would give you a rightful entrance before the sovereign, before the king, and not just an entrance, but an acceptance to that king. And what a beautiful picture, isn't it? That Jesus Christ, the just one, suffered and died for the unjust. Why? To pay for our sins. He died for our sins once for all. Something that all of the animal sacrifices or all the sacrificial acts ever done will not add up to. He suffered once and all for sins so that we might be brought into a right relationship with holy God. I remember a pastor some years ago talking about uh, he happened to be the chaplain for the Dallas Cowboys football team years ago before Jerry Jones was, and he said he got invited to sit in the owner's suite. And so they went to the stadium there, and uh, the owner's suite has its own elevator, and there are guards at the entrance to the elevator to ensure that nobody even gets on the elevator up to the suite. 
And he says he was with the owner. And when the guard saw the owner, because he was with the owner, they got in and went to the suite. That's the picture of what Christ has done for us. Because we are with Christ, we come right before the Father and we are fully accepted in Him. And we enjoy all the benefits that come to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does that help? how does that help us? What does this do for us in this context of encouraging us to endure unjust suffering? How do we help, how does this help us walk in our daily living? Well, I would say the first thing is, is if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're a follower of Jesus Christ because you believe in the just suffering unjustly. You have to. You can't be on the hill of saying all unjust suffering is wrong. Otherwise, you're not a Christian. To be a Christian, you have to say unjust suffering can and often does have a purpose. And the greatest example of that is who? Jesus. So to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you have to embrace that God brings and allows unjust suffering for greater triumph. Now that'll mess with your whole system right there. Because we would like to say unjust suffering is always wrong. It is always wrong. But does it do something greater? Yes. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you believe in the just suffering unjustly. You believe in the just one suffering unjustly. And you're the unjust one for whom he suffered. I'm the unjust one for whom he suffered the abuse and the mocking and the scorn and the ridicule and the beatings and the death. And so we see through the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, unjust suffering, according to the will of God, opens up to a glorious triumph that wasn't possible any other way. And nowhere is that more clear than in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Was it wrong that Christ had to die? Yes. Did God have a greater purpose for it? What's the answer? Yes. And if you know Christ, you are exhibit A. You're exhibit A. And so, see the purpose that God has often in very unjust suffering. And then, of course, going back to the verses before, and understand that often aren't being treated unjustly, and a right response to that opens avenues for the sharing of the gospel to people who have not yet believed yet. Well, that's the clear part of what we're looking at this morning. You ready to jump into the unclear part? It begins at the end of verse 18 uh, with this phrase uh, right here. He had been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Where am I here? Now, there's several different ways to read these next few verses here. 
Uh, he had been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits, now in prison, who were once who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now we're going to walk through each phrase. Let me tell you the, the three primary understandings of this from an evangelical point of view. One is a view that Augustine came up with, one of the early church fathers. And he was bothered by the, uh, up to then, understandings of this verse, and some of them were heretical, but he is particularly troubled by this phrase in the Apostles' Creed. Um, and we're just jumping into part of it there, but where it says, uh, Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, and he descended to the dead. That phrase bothered him for this reason, and it was a good reason it bothered him, because some people said that he descended to the dead to give them a second chance at salvation. And that is totally heretical. Uh, there is no second chances when we take our final breath. Our eternal fate is sealed. The scriptures could not be more clear on that. And, and so Augustine was troubled by that phrase. And so what he did with this passage was he said the spirit of Christ was present in Noah during the flood and was proclaiming through Noah the gospel of salvation in God by getting in the ark. And, and that's what the proclamation was. And so that is Augustine's view. There's some very good, smart people, a lot smarter than me, that believe that view. That, by the way, there's people who read Greek like English who are on each one of these views, which is not helpful <laughs> when you're trying to figure this out. Okay? So that's one view. The second view is that after Jesus' resurrection, uh, in the Holy Spirit, that he descended uh, either to free those who were believers in paradise, uh, Abraham's bosom, remember he said uh, to the thief, I will be with you in paradise today, and to move them into a fuller presence of God, which we might loosely call heaven, or maybe to uh, proclaim defeat to the devil. But anyway, they place this after the resurrection of Christ. The third view is, the third primary view is, that Jesus, after his death, after sin was paid for, he went in his human spirit before the resurrection, and he went to the place that the demons were that had been in prison since Genesis chapter 6 and 7, and he proclaimed to them their absolute total defeat and the triumph that was sealed through his crucifixion on the cross. I actually think that's the best view. So that's the one we're going to walk through here in these next few minutes, all right? So let's begin with this phrase. Uh, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit or in the uh, capital S. So two ways to understand that. It was his human spirit or it was the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and there's, there's some good arguments either way. Um, it is used both ways. 
this would be the human spirit that Christ was given when he became a man, just like each one of us have a human spirit within us, that immaterial part of us. Um, and so if you take it as the Holy Spirit, then, then we're talking about after he's put to death in the flesh, he was made alive in the spirit, meaning the resurrection. If you're going to take it as the human spirit, what does it mean that he was made alive in the spirit? If it's resurrection, that's pretty clear. If it's the human spirit, in what sense was Jesus made alive in the spirit even before his resurrection? Well, let's go back to a few things that Jesus said on the cross during his crucifixion. Towards the end there, he says about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so this would be an understanding that there was a separation between not just the body of Jesus, but the spirit of Christ between he and his father as he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. And the final things that he said, therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he says, it is finished. What's finished? Everything I needed to do to be able to bring people to God. It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Or in the John account, and Jesus crying out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So if the understanding is that Peter is here referring to his human spirit, in a sense, during his separation from God, he was dead towards God. And when he took his final breath and his flesh was put to death, his spirit was then made back alive in the sense of being fully reconciled and uh, reconnected with God as his father. And so he went from being dead and separated from God during those three hours to now being made alive to God, his father, and that that is what that would be a reference to. Which means then that the phrase there at the end of verse 17, or the end of verse 18, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, is actually concurrent events. When he took his final breath and, and his flesh died, his body died, his spirit was made alive in its, in its reconciliation, in its aliveness towards his father. And, uh, and so that's the way I would actually understand that. I think that best fits uh, with this. So then we move on to this next phrase, uh, in which also, or if you, if you believe it's the Holy Spirit, you would say, in whom also, in the power of the Holy Spirit, so follow the way I, I believe it's best understood, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison. Now this is kind of like a domino thing here, um, and that's why you can end up with so many different things, in which also he went, okay, so where did he go? And he made proclamation. Okay, so what did he say? To the spirits in prison. Uh, who are these spirits in prison? I mean, that one, that one little phrase. We got a lot of options here. 
okay? So uh, let's just go down the road here. So I believe that it was Jesus in his human spirit now made alive with God. He went and made proclamation. Now, people who would say that he made proclamation and gave people a second chance would take proclamation to be the same as gospel. But the word proclamation is often used of sharing the gospel, but it's often used of all kinds of proclamations. In fact, whenever a king had an announcement to make, they would make a proclamation. And so this word proclamation does not have to be a reference to sharing the gospel. It can be any particular proclamation that Jesus might have wanted to make. So where did he go? Who are these spirits in prison? Well, it seems that the next verse describes and defines that for us. Who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And so here it's taking us back to Noah and his unjust suffering and God's triumph through that all. And so, keep something in 1 Peter, we'll be back, but turn over to Genesis chapter 6. Go back to the early pages of the scriptures there. Genesis 6. To another confusing passage of scripture. Not that God triumphed, that's not confusing. But these first, first few verses... Uh, are an issue of great debate as well. So it's nothing like going from one hard passage to another one. But here we go. Genesis chapter 6, verse 1, Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh, nevertheless his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, For the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms and shall cover it inside and outside with pitch. And then it goes on 
and gives the details there. Um, the condition of the earth and the destruction upon the earth was so contrary to the design of God, and he uses a lot of different descriptions there. God was patient 120 years, but it was so corrupt that he had to destroy all the people, all the birds, all of the creeping things upon the earth. And verses one through three describe something that set that in motion. Now, some would say it's the ungodly line of Genesis 4 intermarrying with the godly line of Genesis 5. That's a possible understanding of it. Others would say that actually there was actually some demons who came down and either came in male human form or they possessed men and they then had relationships with women and out of that came a horribly twisted, perverted way of life that then is described in those following verses there. This is actually the view of Jews about what happened. That second view is actually what Jews believed going back at least to 200 BC. It is the more traditional view, if you will. Now, you might say, how in the world do demons um, either take on human form, or how do they possess people and somehow in the midst of improper physical relationships does everything go so bad as it did during the flood to warrant God destroying the earth? Well, Jude uh, 6 and 7, actually, that little book of Jude, actually pulls together what God did in the flood and what he did in Sodom and Gomorrah. And I think there's some parallels here that are helpful. Jude 6 and 7 says, And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah, just as, that's a key phrase, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way, as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Now, it's generally understood that the first part there in angels who did not keep their proper domain refers to Genesis chapter 6. And what happened in Genesis 6 is, is similar to what happened with Sodom and Gomorrah. What happened in Sodom and Gomorrah? Uh, angels came in, in, in appearance as men to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. They were staying in Lot's house, and the human men of that city wanted to have inappropriate relationships with them. And that, they did not keep their, how does it say that? Uh, after strange flesh. They went after strange flesh. They went out after something that was even beyond just man with man, woman with woman. It was even beyond that realm. And it was so, so twisted, so far from the design of God that God obliterated Sodom and Gomorrah. In the, and, and Sodom and Gomorrah is in the same way as Genesis 6, which then would give credence to how demons would come down in human form, just as the good angels came down in human form, and human men wanted to have relationships with them, demons came down in human form and had relationships with women, or they so possessed men 
That's a whole other argument that we won't spend time on this morning. And so there seems to be a parallel to here that they did not even keep their own domain and they abandoned their proper abode. Demons did something so far outside of the design of God. They moved out of the realm that they should have functioned in, even as demons. And they intermarried with these women or they possessed men. And the destruction then becomes so demonic that God says, I'm going to destroy the whole thing. And he tells Noah, rain's coming, you start telling people, you give them a chance to repent. And after 120 years of working on this boat, remember they'd never seen rain. Being mocked and ridiculed and suffering unjustly for 120 years. They get in the boat, beautiful thing, God shuts the door. And the rain begins to fall and what does everybody else conclude? Oh no, oh no. And I can only imagine the panic on the earth in that day as the waters began to rise up. So Noah's unjust suffering, Noah's unjust suffering brought God's triumph, didn't it? And that's Paul, Peter's point back in 1 Peter here. That's why he brings this up. You need an example of somebody who had to suffer unjustly. I mean, why was he suffering? Because God gave him a message. Because he was righteous. In other words, he didn't get sucked into the culture of his day and into this immorality and everything that was going on, and then God gives him the message, I'm going to destroy this whole thing, start telling everybody about it. And so he does that for 120 years. I, I, this is just, this messes with my head. I've never suffered for 120 years. I won't, will you? I hope I won't anyway. I mean, I think if I'm suffering unjustly for a week, how am I going to make it? So Peter, I mean, he, he says, well, let's think about Noah. 120 years of suffering unjustly. But man, God triumphed, didn't he? I mean, Noah and his family, they get safety coming through that. And they even get to steward a fresh start at creation. It's kind of like Genesis 1 and 2. And they experience eternal salvation. I mean... Do you think that they ever said, as the boat began, as the rain started to fall and, the, and they get out, you ever think to that, wow, God's awesome. This is off the charts. I never even thought about this whole thing. Do you think they said that? Do, do you think they said that? Huh? This is just so amazing what God does. And how do we know that? Hebrews 11, he's the first man mentioned in the hall of faith. It says, by faith, Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen. Nobody's seen rain. Nobody's seen hell. In reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. Noah experienced God's triumph. His family experienced God's triumph. What about all the other people? Shame. 
shame, death. Now, we have no idea if when all that started to come to pass, if some of them says, repented and trusted Christ and we'll see him in heaven. Or whether it's kind of like the book of Revelation, it was so demonically influenced that even when God begins to show his mighty power and things begin to happen exactly as he said it, in the book of Revelation, they know it's from God and they shake their fist at him and they cuss him. We don't know what the dynamics were there. But what we know is they experienced great shame. Oh, we've been laughing at Noah for 120 years. Ooh. Ooh. And they experienced death. And they experienced the awesomeness of God, except they were on the wrong side of it. They realized God says what he means, and he means what he says. He does what he has promised. Noah experienced that in a beautiful way. They experienced that in a very horrible way. But there's something else, and I think this is really the emphasis and why Peter brings this up here, certainly for all those reasons. But those demons, it seems, were cast into prison for the particular wickedness of what they did. And, and we may get a hint at this when Jesus, during his ministry, comes up uh, upon the Gadarean demoniacs uh, those highly possessed men, and, uh, and the demons within them cry out, saying to Jesus, what business do we have with you, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before our time? You know, and then they ask to be able to go into the pigs. It seems amongst the demons, they understood that there was a more severe punishment for some demons, while others can continue to roam the earth and wreak their havoc for a time. And it would seem that they could very well have been referring to these demons from Genesis chapter 6. And so they were put in prison. Peter says that very clearly here. But here there's a proclamation of Christ. I believe what Peter is saying here is that when Jesus took his final breath, he was made alive in the spirit and he went and he proclaimed a finality to those demons. He proclaimed the triumph of God that was ultimately sealed at the cross. At the cross. And I think verse 22 adds emphasis to that. After his resurrection, he is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. There's an ultimate final subjection because at the cross, Satan and all their demons lost any ability to have their way with any follower of Jesus Christ. And so there's a finality to that. So, unjust suffering, it's a door for God's triumph. And God really wants us to change the way we view being unjustly treated. And he wants us to be very clear that, that no matter how long the night is that we undergo unjust suffering, whether it's a day or a week or years or 120 years, it always gives way to a morning of God's triumph. 
a morning of God's triumph that is so grand and glorious that the unjust suffering is a door that we would want to walk through. So here's the way I want to conclude this morning. Is I want you to put your name in this. And I want you to think about some way you have been unjustly treated. Some way you're unjustly suffering. And it could be that you're just not dealing with this very well right now. This is especially who I'm talking to. Those of you that are angry, why did this have to happen? Why did this happen to me? Why is this going on? Um, Maybe even some bitterness, uh, constant recounting of words that someone said or or actions that they did towards you. and I, I just beg you by a work of the Spirit that, that you would embrace that as part of God's will for your life to lead you into a greater place of triumph and freedom. So I've got a prayer for any of you that would like to go down this path. And I want to just lead us in it. And, um, and if you're in that particular place, move into a place of embracing the unjust suffering so that you can begin to walk in that triumph even if it's not fully been accomplished yet. So would you just bow your heads with me, please? And just pray something like this. Father God, I thank you for your good and perfect will in my life. Just pray it silently just between you and God the Father. Father God, I thank you for your good and perfect will in my life. I thank you for your love, which caused Jesus, the just one, to suffer and die because I'm unjust. I thank you that I now live reconciled to you, Father, because of Christ. You are my heavenly Father. Jesus, you are my Savior. Nobody loves me as perfectly as you do. Father, I remember, and just go ahead and put in the person's name that has hurt you. And I remember what they said, or I remember what they did, and just go ahead and say that. Father, what they did was mean, and may have been intended to harm me. It hurts, and it still hurts. Father, I choose right now to look beyond them to you. I accept this as part of your goodwill for my life. I want to know you. I want to know your greatness. I want to know your love. I want to know your peace. I turn and go ahead and say their name over to you and pray for you to do a good work in their life 
even as you have in mine. In the name of God, my Father, Jesus, my Savior, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Stephen, if you want to come, let me just give one word on this.